0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Boys of Summer, and our author is Lucian Plant. Welcome, sir, to the program.
2: Good to be there.
1: This book is a uh, somewhat a historical novel. It is totally fiction, though. Am I understanding that correctly? Uh,
2: It's uh, it's both. It's Um, both based on facts. It's 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 historically accurate, but the people are fictional people.
1: You have three main characters. Uh, I think it's uh, Robbie, uh, Brian, and Mike. Who are these individuals, and what does the story entail? What uh, what is the, the background of their story?
2: The background of the story is um, that if you work hard, um, you can accomplish what you want, and, and and I say that because it's about people that migrated to this country from Europe and they settled in North Carolina and then they migrated further west into what was then called the frontier, and, and they just it was a book to prove it was a book about people that worked hard and had a like interest.
1: And what was the time frame that this story is? Set?
2: 1855 to 1865.
1: 1855, so about the Civil War era.
2: Well, yeah, it starts around the uh, a bit like the Missouri Compromise, yeah, uh, up through to it ends just prior to the Civil War ending.
1: Sure, and and why did this era appeal to you in writing this novel?
2: Well, I'm a history buff, and my favorite time in history is the American Civil War. I have volumes of books on uh, the Civil American Civil War. I think it's just a terrible, sad time, and there's a lot to be learned. by it.
1: Have you discovered a writer or an author from that period that you enjoy reading?
2: No, I no. Um, Everything's contemporary. I, I, just, I read a lot of historical. I have my books in my in my private library are historical books, and. And I've just, I've not found one I didn't like.
1: And who do you think this book is going to appeal to? What What makes this an interesting read, and to whom?
2: Well, it, for me, it'd be anybody that's interested in history. But it's not just a historical document. It's a story about people. And, it, and you could use that same setting for today and leave out the Civil War, because there's people that struggle with trying to get from square one to square three.
1: And do your characters actually participate in the Civil War, or are they just happen to live during that time frame?
2: Oh, they participate.
1: And are they on the same side?
3: They
2: are all on the same side. Yes, they are. Some were reluctant to get involved in it, but they all are on the same side. They all end up on the same page.
1: As a writer, I know that you have done more than or completed more than one book in your history, and uh, you enjoy the historical aspects of of writing. Where do you get your story ideas? Uh, Are you a, a writer that gets a story idea and then does an outline, or do you work from inspiration? How does your writing and creative process begin?
2: Um, <clears throat> excuse me, that's an interesting question because it's it's both of what you said uh, um, I, matter of fact I have a, a doctor friend uh, that lives in, Messini's retired and uh, Doc Negus and, and he told me a story about his family migrating to this country from Europe and they landed in North Carolina migrated to Connecticut and so the, the, this, the book I'm working on right now is is based on the story he told me about his family. So I'm inspired that way, and some of it is just from some of the historical documents of, uh, that I've read that are just so sad. And they're just they're sad that we could have a country that, where brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles could take up arms against each other. So, I, and when I do it, I do outline stage. I write, I go down through and do an outline, and then I put the book together based on the outline.
1: You flesh it out from there. Yes. Because you love historical research and historical novels, is there any character in history, or historically, that you would you would possibly want to change places with?
2: Actually, there's two of them. Uh, one of them is uh, Thomas Jefferson, the other is Robert E. Lee.
1: Good choices good choices. And as a writer, have you received any powerful advice, either as a writer or just in life that has been a foundation that you're building upon?
2: Not from those two people. Um, but, no, it's just, no part from individuals who aren't writers, yes. Yes.
1: And what would you pass along to someone who wants to be a writer?
2: Don't ever give up.
1: Just keep plugging away and keep the pencil I, as sharp. As a matter
2: of fact, I was just two weeks ago at my church. There's a young girl, and she's a young girl. She's like 13 or 14, and she likes writing poetry. And her parents were telling me about it. Her parents were talking to me about it because they know that I write. And uh, and I told her, don't don't lose that. Don't give up on that. Don't. And and, and, and it ain't always what somebody else thinks. Go ahead and do it. Because my mother wrote poetry, and, and she's won several awards. She's passed away last November, and, and she won several awards for writing po- excuse me, poetry. And she didn't necessarily do it for everybody else. It was something that made her feel good.
1: Well, it's a good foundation to work from, doing something you I, love and being benefited if, uh, because of it. Yeah. How long did it take you to complete The Boys of Summer? There's 254 pages. That's a fairly ambitious read or write, I guess, would be a better way of describing it. How long did it take to complete?
2: Well, um, probably, it really was quick. Writing is pretty quick for me because I only write about things I already know about, and so the researcher sees. I probably took me, from the time that I started writing it until the time it was published, probably a year.
1: That's a quick turnaround, although I have have, uh, talked with authors who can... Churn out a book a month, which I don't understand how that's possible, but there are a few. Most of them take longer than that. I've had some take 20 years to complete their first novel. So oh,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: This is, uh, this the is. The second
2: book uh, I wrote took me a lot longer. Really? Yes.
1: And why do you think that was the case?
2: Um, I have not the foggiest idea. I wish I could tell you, <laughs> uh, because I would take care of that, because the fifth book I wrote took me only two months. Amazing. Uh, yeah, and it's it's and it's done it's it's just, you know, ready to be published. <clears throat> the second book I wrote is funny because it was really stuff I knew about personally. It's stuff I did in my own life.
1: And what was the title and of that book?
2: That was the only book I did wrote that wasn't a historical book. All five out of the six are historical books. That book is King of the Mountain. King of the Mountain. And it's a mo- it's a modern day book. It's a modern it, it happens it's like today.
1: Boys of Summer, how would you introduce this to someone who doesn't know about your other books or know of your writing style?
2: Wow. Um, if I, I would just take and tell somebody, if you like history, real history, because history has a tendency to be massaged way too much, if you truly like history, it's a great book to read because there's a storyline in it, but it's surrounded by actual history. Oh, well, that that's, that's the only way I can describe it. Um, because there is a storyline within a storyline. Everybody's familiar with the American Civil War and its outcome, but everybody's not familiar with the storyline behind the Civil War. You know, and, and I do that in a lot of my books. I will take breaks in it, and I'll put in notations history, and I'll give a little history about a particular, particular battle, a particular vote, or why something took place. Uh, how it took place or where it took place. It's like, uh, matter of fact, one of my sisters, who is a, my sister Brenda, who's a very intelligent girl, she did really well uh, in school, and she was reading, and she called me up, and she said, I didn't know the Confederacy tried to attack New York City. I said, because they don't teach it to us in school. Mm. But they did. They attacked it. They came down from Montreal, because Mont- there was a Confederate embassy in Montreal during the American Civil War. And they came, some Confederates came down from Montreal into it. So for her, there was two, two stories being told in the book. There was one information, it was a bunch of information about the Civil War she knew nothing about, but then there was a storyline about a family of people, two families of people that grew together and grew through the Civil War.
1: Is there a single scene in your book that you've created that is going to grab the reader's attention and hold it, or... Make them interested in reading the book.
2: Um, yes. Yes, there is. But I can't tell you which one it is because, um, as an example, it's different for different people. I had a woman that called me up and asked me if I could make a copy of page 187 and enlarge the print because she wanted to put it in a frame. Hmm. And I couldn't, I couldn't remember page 187, <laughs> you know, because I've done a bunch of writing. And, and I couldn't remember page 187, so I, I, I had to go look. And, um, and I asked her, I said, Listen, I don't remember page 187. Could you tell me about it? I couldn't even remember writing that page wow. because of the little synopsis she gave me. So I went and looked it up, and, and I ended up doing it. And she said that page influenced her so much. She did this. She read it to herself in her living room. And then she stood up and read it aloud to herself, and then she went where her husband was sitting and read it aloud to him and it was it was that kind of inspiration I gave her and uh it was about you know a, a two young men on the battlefield, and one of them is dying is what one person said to the other that meant so, so much to him um I had a lady that i would, my mother's awake I was at, and she went on with a whole different part of the book so um and my son, one of my sons read, and for him it was the very ending, the very last page of the book. So, I, yeah, I don't know, and my philosophy and what I've told people, is one, because I've been asked, what do you hope? I said, I hope, they said, what do you hope to accomplish with, 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 with your writing? I said, I hope I can create in somebody the desire to read, because my own personal feeling is, uh, I think the greatest subject, two great subjects in the uh, that you could be taught from grade one to the grade 12, is one's history and the other's reading. I think it's important to be able to read and have comprehension of what you're reading, of course. Um, it can't be just words. So I'm hoping to inspire somebody, and, and, and I told people I don't care if it's a line that's in the book. I don't care if it's a paragraph, a chapter, or the whole book. I hope something inspires somebody to pick up. Hopefully it's another one of my books, but it could be one of yours or somebody else's, but it'll inspire somebody to pick up a book and read read on. I just think that's important.
1: Would you describe the book as character-driven, or is it uh, action-driven?
2: Uh, I, I think it's character-driven. A lot of action, but I believe it's character-driven, based on three characters, because they, they do a lot in the book. There's a, there's a lot that goes on. And there's other people other than the three, and there's a lot of people involved, but it's based on Brian, Robbie, and Mike
3: is what it is.
1: Was there anything challenging about the historical nature of this and the research you had to do to to complete the novel?
2: um, It probably sounds strange, but it was like it just came together uh, in my mind. Um, Actually, like Brian and Robbie, those two people, uh... I have a friend that has two sons by the name of Brian and Robbie, and and it's their personality, and their parents know it because I've talked to them about it. It's their personality; they're just hustle and bustle boys, and you know they're full of fire and brimstone, and they want something to happen. And and uh, <clears throat> so, uh, for me, it was just it just popped into my head. It's kind of like book number four. It's uh, a book uh, called From Once They Came my wife and I at the time, we had two daughters that lived in Virginia and two that lived in North Carolina. And my daughter, Nicole, who lived in Virginia, invited us down. And so we went down and um, so we're going to her house. Ha- well, I knew her address before we went. And when she told me her address, because I'm a Civil War junkie, she said she lived on Battlefield Road. And I thought, wow, this is <laughs> going to be a great vacation. And so the first thing she did when I got there, she invited my wife and I to go to the battlefield. And my wife, you know, uh, withdrew from the offer, and so my daughter and I went there. And I'm standing up from a monument that says this: "This monument is here not just for the people that fought from the south, but both sides, because both of them were fighting with honor. They were fighting for something they believed in." Hmm. And pow, the whole book come to my mind. <laughs> wow. I was going to write a book about that, wow. and um, and so and it does. And it, it's about a couple going down to see their daughter in, in Virginia, and she lives on Battlefield Road, and. Brings her father to the monument. <laughs> that is where it stops and starts with me. I don't have my name or my wife's, but, but that's where it's, But it brings there, and then the, the rest of the story goes. Um, so a lot of them are inspired by things that I've read and or seen or done. Books are. Well, thank you for
1: sharing that. This particular book is titled Boys of Summer, and our author yeah. is Lucian N. Plant, P-L-A-N-T-E, for those of you who are listening and, uh, Lucian, where do we get copies of your book or your novels?
2: You can get them off the Internet. Go to, like, uh, iUniverse, or you can get them through Amazon.com.
1: Excellent. Thank you, yeah. Lu- Thank you Lucian, for joining me today.
2: Hey, my well, it's my pleasure.
1: For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker.
2: You're
0: listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
4: Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 3 central on toginet.com.
0: To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title, Unrelenting Nightmare, and our author, Stan Yokum. The back of Stan's book starts off with this recap of what the story might be about. Stuart Garrison. A brilliant virtual reality software developer has his company poised on the threshold of industry dominance with the release of his newest virtual reality system, Next World. Our author today has been the recipient of the Editor's Choice Award and the Rising Star Recognition. Stan, welcome to the program. Hi, Jay. How are you? Doing well. This is an intriguing start. Next World has got my attention. Tell me about your story. How does it begin and what motivated you to put this book together?
3: Uh, The virtual reality is something that has intrigued me since the 60s, 1960s, when uh, my first degree in college was in theater arts and I was in acting. And I went to a presentation of what virtual reality could do for designing sets, and I sat in the audience and was just wowed. I said, this is unbelievable. Uh, years later, when I decided to actually write a novel, uh, I decided to do so in the business world since after being in theater and not doing very well in it, I decided I need to create a career that would allow me to eat. So I went back to school and got a degree in accounting. And... I was working with a major accounting firm, and I had wanted to write a novel since I was very young and in high school, and I kept thinking about, how do I go about this? And I heard, if you want to write something, write about something you know about, whether that's your work or your business or your life experiences. And I sat around, and I looked down the office, and I said, what could I write about this? But as I matured and everything, I started figuring out the business world is quite active about things that go on that most people don't know nothing about. And since spies and police and military and medicine were abundantly covered in all the novels that I read, I decided, let's, let's tackle the business world and see what happens there. So that is when I came up with the idea of writing this novel, Unrelenting Nightmare. I took Stuart Garrison, uh, made him into a, almost a genius in coming up with the creative abilities of programming. And then I also used my acting background in creating the antagonist of the story, who was an assassin. And I put the two together with the desire to write a novel that was action-packed and full of intrigue because those are what I enjoyed reading, uh, which started back when I was in college and I was reading everything that Ian Fleming wrote about James Bond. I really like suspense novels. And I created the action because I was told by an editor through iUniverse the importance of starting off a suspense novel with a first chapter that just absolutely grabs the attention of your readers, and just draws them into the novel. And I said, okay, let me do this, and let me develop a stunner of a first chapter. So I think most people, everyone who's ever read the manuscript or the book has said, this is one incredible first chapter. I mean, it hits you from left field. You don't know, you're sitting, reading along, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the the chapter ends, and everybody's left with... What? (laughs) That is usually the question. What in the world? Why did this happen? Anyway, that was the entrance into what this character named Nomad does, the character being the assassin.
1: Yeah, Nomad was the assassin in your book, or is the assassin. Yes.
3: He has another name, but that's the name he goes by in his profession. And he's very well known. The story goes on from there. I try to create very realistic action scenes. Uh, i 've always been opposed to in in movies or books when I sit there and I think well now wasn 't that coincidental that that just happened at that moment and I try to stay away from those things. I try to make my novels very very realistic and the scenes the same way
1: this is an and, in, this is an interesting interesting approach to a very um, I would say a contemporary subject matter that a lot of people are interested in. Uh, the virtual reality concept is a, a great one that you've chosen. When did you start writing books? Is this your first novel or how would you describe your writing process?
3: Well, I again, like I said, I, I wanted to start writing novels in high school. I did so with horrible results. I couldn't even uh, figure out plots, how to get through a plot. And I just waited a long time, to, kept dabbling, it in, in college when I went into acting, I wrote a number of plays, like one-act plays, and I thoroughly enjoyed the process. I said, I, I just, I feel like I have stories to tell, I just don't know how to put them down on paper. And I think maturity has a lot to do with this. I was... Probably a little bit slower in maturing than most authors are. I mean, I, I read some of these books that these young kids write, and I, young kids being 30 year old, and I'm going, "Wow, that's pretty neat to be able to put that together at that age." But anyway, I was in my 50s when I finally sat down and said, "Okay, let's have a go at this." I had some pretty good ideas about where I wanted to start with being the business world being the background of my suspense novels. And the first book I wrote was dealt in the world of turnaround, business turnarounds, which I did as a businessman. And the second one, which is Unrelenting Nightmare, I, uh, as I told you, I, I kind of said, I want to make this really action-packed. But virtual reality was a strong magnet to me that had been around for a long time. And I said, boy, if I create something here, I can make a strong statement because my thinking is if this keeps progressing the way it is, I see these games and how realistic they're getting and the animation that is on the screen, I just, I'm just, i almost well overwhelmed by it, saying, boy, these things are so close to being real. And my mind started going as my imagination did. And I said, wow, this could really become something in the future that we may not want to have come about so that's what drew it all t- together in my mind and I just sat down and started writing and it was a lot of fun very rewarding I, I try to tell people you cannot believe the excitement I get sitting alone in my room, sitting at the keyboard and trying as quickly as I can to type down the thoughts that are going through my mind. So
1: you work from a creative inspiration standpoint rather than an outline and fleshing out the characters and doing all of that uh, pre-prep work? You know,
3: no. I, yeah, I did the first one. I sat down and I just started writing the book. And if, if I saw how difficult that came about, I said, no, you know, you need to go back. You, you need to come up with what I call a storyline which you do in in developing motion pictures and TV shows and everything or mainly motion pictures you've seen them they they have every scene drawn out on a on a big storyboard board, yeah so storyboard exactly know how they follow and i did that with my story so before i ever start writing now before i ever start writing what i'm going the story that i'm going to tell you i have it all laid out exactly how it starts where it goes to and how it finishes once I start writing, that story changes, but I have the whole scheme of where, how I want to get from A to Z very well for me.
1: In Unrelenting Nightmare, you've mentioned there's a lot of action-packed scenes. If this yes. does get picked up by a movie studio, which one do you think they're going to gravitate toward?
3: What scene?
1: Yes, what scene, what action-packed event?
3: Well, uh, Jay, there, like I said, there are a number of them, and I purposely did that. Uh, the first big one is a scene that takes place in the Bahamas, and it is of massive proportions. I mean, I have cars, and I have trucks, and I have helicopters, and I think it fits very well together in, its, in how I play it out. Um, I found it very fascinating to write because I take different perspectives at the scene, and readers who have read first the manuscript and then the other book I mean, the book, the, they all say this is an exciting scene to deal with. Now, I have heard from a couple of people who first read the manuscript, this would be an excellent movie because it is so action-packed. The final scene, which takes place in Stewart, who is one of the main characters in Stewart's house, uh, is also filled with action and very intense how it's carried out. This is when Nomad makes his final attempt at assassinating Stuart Garrison.
1: You've also included, uh, I guess, part of the adventure is, is it takes place in Canada and Iran. Right. But what happens in Iran?
3: Well, this is when Nomad, who, that's his assassin's name, uh, his real name is Cameron Clark is in the Delta Force and he is part of a team that goes out to kill a terrorist individual and that's a staggering first scene or the first chapter in the book and I don't want to uh, tell what exactly happens because uh,
1: by the book and find out is what you're telling me
3: Yeah, (laughs) that would be nice. I would appreciate that. (laughs)
1: Well, I'm going to encourage people to do that. How would you introduce your book and your your writing style to someone who is not familiar with your writing?
3: Uh, I have been told that my writing style is very easy to read. What I hated when I was first reading is having to sit down and look up in a dictionary what the heck one word meant. And... I said, if I write, I want people to just be able to read the story, get absorbed in it, and not have to feel like they have to interpret the words that I'm saying, saying, well, what does that mean? I also, to get an idea, one of my favorite writers is John Grisham. And when I was reading his novels, I just, I thought, wow, this is how I would like to write. This is how I think I would write, because they're very easy scenes to follow, Whatever he talked about, whether it was action or love or anything like that, was done so nicely and so easily. I said, I so enjoy writing this book, and obviously a lot of people do because he's very, very popular. I said, I hope that's what I write. Well, that's my writing style. And I think it has been, I had been referred to him a couple of times. Uh, one individual actually said, he goes, if, if you enjoy John Grisham, then read Stan Joachim. He just does it in the business world instead of the legal world.
1: beautiful great commendation. Was there anything about writing this particular novel that was a challenge to you?
3: Well, creating the character of Nomad was very challenging. Um, in fact, I had to do a major rewrite on his incentive what What made him do I mean, He's a very cruel and callous person. And the editor at I, I, I Universe uh, made an interesting comment. He says, Stan, he goes, you know all about Nomad. I mean, you created him in your mind. Give us an inkling of what drives him to do these things because he is one mean person and we need some connection that, that, that we can grab a hold of and say, I know why he does this because I've, a couple of people had told me, they said, boy, this man is brutal. I mean, he kills just relentlessly. Just, boy, I don't, don't care about you. Just, boom, you're dead. So that was the challenging part. I had to go back in after I'd rewritten, I mean, written the first manuscript and edited it. And surprisingly, I did it in what I think is a very simple way. It didn't take very long. It was about a chapter. I mean, excuse me, it was about a, a paragraph that I actually inserted. That describes his early upbringing. And, and I don't want to give a lot away, I mean, the design of him away too much, because I like to leave the readers to determine what they think they that drove him. But that was probably the most challenging effort I had to do, is put that in. And the, the editor, when he got done reading my new work, he said, Very well done.
1: Stan, great job. This is a uh, fast paced action-packed adventure, 330 pages. The title, Unrelenting Nightmare. Our author, Stan Yoakam. Thank you, Stan, for joining me today. Where can we get copies of your book?
3: Jay, the book is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and iUniverse's websites. And uh, the easiest way to do on any of them is just to go in and write the title, Unrelenting Nightmare, and it'll immediately come up. Great. And you can buy it in three forms. There's a hardcover, a soft cover, and the electronic book format. Thank you
1: for sharing the background information on your novel. For those of us who are listeners and uh, web searchers, they can also keep in contact with your future projects by doing a search under Stan Yoakum. Yoakum is spelled Y-O-C-U-M. And they'll be able to keep up to date on your future projects.
3: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that.
1: Enjoyed visiting with you. Thank you for joining me. I
3: enjoyed visiting with you, Jay. And thank you for having me on your program.
1: For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio.
0: We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com.
0: to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker, an intriguing book titled Outrageous Grace, a story of tragedy and forgiveness written by Grace L. Fabian. And this is the updated version. Now here to share a very personal story is our guest, Grace L. Fabian. Grace, welcome to the program.
5: Uh, Thank you.
1: The back of your book, the first paragraph, grabbed my attention. It reads like this. That morning, a beautiful day on the tropical island of Papua New Guinea, Grace Fabian brimmed in excitement over the idea that she and her husband, Edmund, were close to finishing their missionary project, the translation of the Nabak New Testament. But while in the midst of translating the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, someone murdered Edmund. This is a true story and it's your story, your life, isn't it?
5: Yes, I have uh, lived every every word of it.
1: And how long ago did this tragedy take place?
5: Uh, this was in 1993.
1: 93. And prior to that, you had also been with Wycliffe and done translation of uh, native languages around the globe. What other location had you worked in?
5: Uh, I started out as a single gal in uh, southern Mexico, working with the Wisteko Indians there, a Mayan language group. But then when I got married, I realized that by the time my husband would have learned that language, we would be close to finishing that New Testament. So he and I decided on a completely new place, and that's why we went to Papua New Guinea.
1: The length of time it takes for individuals like Wycliffe Translators to learn a foreign language or learn a language and a dialect, what is the length of time it takes?
5: Oh, well, it differs according to uh, the difficulty of the language, and every situation is quite different. You have to remember it's not just learning the language, it is all the language has never been written down before. So it involves devising an alphabet and uh, teaching people to read, uh, figuring out the whole sound system and the grammar, um, and putting it in written form.
1: Is there a correlation between English as far as the the, uh, letters and so on that uh, Wycliffe uses, or do they have to develop letters that that match the indigenous tribes?
5: Yes, they match uh, whatever country they are in. In Papua New Guinea, we used our English-type letters uh, because the country uh, was given to Australia as a trust territory by the United Nations, so the people there were already familiar with, with our our type of letters. But of course, if we're working in a place like India, for instance, uh, then they use a completely different script.
1: What was the reason you wanted to tell your story, besides the obvious? <laughs>
5: uh, well... When it was time to return to the US, my son, my oldest son said that he had seen me doing a lot of writing while we lived in Papua New Guinea. And he said, you know, mom, this is is our legacy too. We all want copies of those stories. So I started out just making some photocopies and going through my old letters and so on. Uh, but then it turned out to be more work than I thought. And uh, I needed to edit some. Um, some of them were old carbon copies on onion skin. And I happened to describe to my friend what what I was doing. And she said, well, think about it, Grace. She said, it's not just your children who want those stories. We all want to, to read those stories. Write a book, for goodness sakes. And so that's how I started. And, of course, as I got along, uh, then I realized more and more how important the message of the book really is.
1: Who do you think will find this story fascinating and uh, will find it appealing?
5: Well, I'm a widow. haven't always been a widow, but uh, I think widows and widowers will enjoy the book, uh, benefit from it. I find that a lot of uh, young people, young adults, college-age students, they're looking for inspiration. They're looking for a challenge. Uh, they, Many of them are considering a career in how to change the world. <laughs> and so I think they would find that an inspiring me, an inspiring role model. And I realize as I go around speaking that there is a lot of pain and loss and tragedy in this world, and I think this book helps people going through crisis because they can say, well look, uh, she made it, (laughs) maybe I will too. Uh,
1: This is a very difficult story to tell, at least it would be if I were writing the book and it was my personal story. How long did it take you to put this book together?
5: I started in 2005 just taking tentative steps with going to a writer's conference, uh, subscribing to a writer's magazine. I really did not know anything about about how to write a book, and so I had to get a lot of help from other people. And so I put some drafts out there of various chapters and had critique uh, groups going over it, and it was first published in 2009.
1: What is the one thing you want readers to take away from reading Outrageous Grace?
5: Well, I guess to say that these are not really eloquent words, uh, but they are true, and I think it is a testimony to God's unfailing love
1: is there a mission project still underway in Papua New Guinea where you had been working?
5: My husband and I were the only two people there with our four children. We finished, uh, uh, I finished the Navak New Testament in 1998 and it was dedicated to the glory of God. Uh, just last year, exactly at this time, I was back in Papua New Guinea visiting the Navak people and I found that the 7,000 New Testaments that we had printed at that time have all been distributed, and they are asking for a reprint.
1: Oh, that's um, good news.
5: I thought, I thought, you know, 7,000, at least there would be one copy for each family. There are about 25,000 people who speak this language, but now they are asking for more copies.
1: That's encouraging. Absolutely great news. In your book, Outrageous Grace, is there a particular scene or several scenes that should stand out to the reader?
5: Well, uh, for me, one of the most moving scenes is when my mother-in-law fled with her six children during World War II, Uh, fled from Poland. Another very moving scene and and I even get a little choked up as I talk about it, is when the wife of the man who killed my husband uh, asked me to be her sister. Mm. And uh, there are several scenes there. Uh, one Nabok man staying up all night after watching the Jesus film, the one and only movie in the Nabok language, and stayed up all night hunched over the fire and uh, pondering the fact that my oldest son had come back to them and uh, the scenes about the life of Christ and just puzzling over that and uh, in the morning saying, I, I know what the message is for the Napa people. <laughs> the way Jonathan and his family have forgiven us is the same kind of forgiveness that Jesus offers us when he died on the cross for our sins. It's just breathtaking uh, what what God was working in his heart. In fact, it marked the turning point for the Nabok people in understanding why in the world had we two crazy white skins come to live among them.
1: There is a similar Account that happened in, I believe, the 50s in South America, and of course, I know you're aware of the Nate Saint story. This has yes. some of that overtone.
5: Yes, of course, that is a different country, but the similar in that a missionary lost was his forgiveness life. Forgiveness offered. Yes. Uh, it's a missionary story how uh, Nate Saint gave his life along with the four others. How
1: would you introduce your book to someone?
5: Well,. <laughs> that it's a a living testimony that will challenge and comfort and inspire others to risk a great loss in order to follow the one who also gave his all. When you read how Jesus, after his resurrection, met with his disciples, he, he reached out his hands. They could see the scars, I'm sure. And he said, peace be with you and then he also said as the father hath sent me so I'm sending you so the father sent me to give my life some of you may have to give your life also to reach the ends of the world
1: how is your book different than others in the marketplace that tell of outrageous grace
5: of course it's it's in a it's in a different uh completely different place than some of the other missionary books, and it also tells about my going back.
1: Are your chapters uh, long, or are they are they uh, filled with details? How would you describe your writing style?
5: I know the chapters are are quite quite short. it's uh, except for the heavy emotional content of the chapters, it's a very, very easy read.
1: and you continue to do public speaking not only of your history, but, uh, of course, telling of your current faith and encouraging others. Do you also have a website?
5: Uh, Yes, I do. It's called uh, www.gracefabian.com.
1: And was there, besides the obvious, what was the most challenging part about writing your book? And was there something also that was rewarding? (laughs)
5: Uh, I think probably one of the most challenging things was That I have hundreds of stories. After all, we lived there 35 and a half years, and every day there was at least one story. (laughs) And so when I came to writing the book, I I started out just writing volumes, and then I was given some wise advice, and told me, uh, people told me I had to cut out some of those stories and make sure that I keep just with that one thread, that one theme of forgiveness and and a triumph over tragedy, that theme. And so the challenge was to how many of those wonderful stories would I have to cut out?
1: Thank you for sharing your story with us today. The title of the book is Outrageous Grace, a story of tragedy and forgiveness, and our guest author, grace l fabian grace where can listeners get a copy of your book
5: uh, well they could on my website or they can uh, they could write to me if they want an autographed copy uh, they need to write to me uh, but of course the book is also available from i-universe
1: thank you for sharing your story for i-universe this is j douglas barker